Hello and welcome to Health to Wealth, a series by Accor. I'm Annie Hood. This is the podcast that shows you just how important well-being is to your health, your business and the world you want to live in. If we were able to uncover the ideas that exist and support the growth of those ideas that exist where people are experiencing true pain points, I think we'd live in a world that's better for everyone. And I'm really excited because I think we really are on the precipice of a real shift to focusing on the problems that matter to all of us and not just a subset of the population. Ali Burns is the CEO of Village Capital, a venture capital firm based in Washington, D.C. Village Capital invests in businesses that address specific social problems, and it's unique in that it prioritizes businesses set up by people from diverse backgrounds who are traditionally overlooked in this area. Ali first became involved in the field of impact investing and philanthropy with the Case Foundation, which was set up by AOL founder Steve Case and his wife, Jean. She was also part of the team that created the Startup America Partnership. That was Barack Obama's initiative that was all about promoting entrepreneurship around the US. Ali played a key role in launching The Rise of the Rest, a program to support tech startups in cities outside Silicon Valley. In this episode of Health to Wealth, you'll hear why Ali is so passionate about creating opportunities for entrepreneurs who are outside the mainstream and why that's so important. Ali, how do we know that there's inequality in investment and what impact does that inequality have on society? So how we know that there's inequality in investing is by looking at the data, first and foremost, starting with where early stage investment is going and who it's going to. So look at inequality actually with multiple lenses. If you look first at gender, less than 10% of companies that receive venture capital investment are founded by mixed gender teams and just less than 2% of venture capital goes to all women founding teams. When you look at race and ethnicity, we have data mostly from the US, but I think this is probably a marker of global data less than 1% of venture capital is going to Black and Latinx founded companies. So we know certainly that this is not following the demographics of the population or the demographics of startup founders. The other piece that I look at is also geographical. So one of the reasons that we started Rise of the Rest was because we found that 75% of venture capital in the U.S. and 50% of venture capital globally is going to just three states, New York, California, Massachusetts. We know that great ideas are not only in those three states. And so certainly there's also a geographic inequality that's really important. And, and the impact is really that we're missing a ton of great innovation that, that could be found and accelerated to solve some of the big problems in the world. I'm a big believer that entrepreneurship is one of the important paths to solving big societal problems. Certainly business is not the only answer. We absolutely need government philanthropy and other players, uh, but entrepreneurship can play a much bigger role in innovating around our big social problems. But if we're not getting capital to people with lived experience and people in places with lived experience, we have a big problem. Those stats you shared are very, very stark. Why is it so important to make sure that people from diverse backgrounds get access to investment? So the first and foremost, it's all about lived experience. We know that some of the biggest societal challenges are being experienced by communities that have been systematically and historically excluded, they're often the best position to come up with great ideas on how to solve these problems. But 
the reality is that because of systematic exclusion and inequity, they don't have access to friends and family or to the ability to bootstrap a company, quit their job, to be able to grow this innovation and get it off the ground. So a lot of entrepreneurs rely on a wealthy uncle or a rich friend or their own wealth that they've generated. But if you're starting off behind the finish line, as many of folks in these uh, sort of historically excluded communities are, you're going to be at a disadvantage where, as I said before, we're really missing an opportunity to get access to really great ideas that have the potential to be incredibly transformative. So one might think it's all about who's got the best ideas, but the reality is it's all about who has the best ideas and the access to investment. Absolutely. Venture capitalists often talk about the benefits of pattern recognition, which in a systematic way can be beneficial. You see a a broad set of data and you're able to extrapolate what works well and what doesn't. But the reality is that it becomes a shortcut for stereotyping. So if a pattern is a founder who looks a certain way, who acts a certain way, who may have dropped out of an elite college has success, then you're going to shortcut that pattern recognition to say other founders who look like this, usually white, usually male, usually gone to an elite school from an elite background, it's going to be easier to default to someone who's familiar with a successful pattern versus being willing to understand how to look beyond implicit bias to find really incredible ideas and innovation. And it's a deeply embedded pattern to break, isn't it? Absolutely. It is. It exists in all of us, right? We all have patterns of behavior that we don't even recognize that we have and uh, stereotypes that we generate that we don't realize we do. And so it's, it's, it's up to all of us to really understand and find tools to be able to break those patterns of bias that exist that are excluding people from the early stage investment ecosystem. And Ali, on a personal level, your background is in corporate communications. How did you go from there to investment and village capital? Sure. It's sort of a roundabout, convoluted way. As you mentioned, I've been in corporate communications and marketing background and so entered into the world of professional work actually during the internet bubble of the late 90s, early 2000s and uh, was in corporate communications. Learned very quickly about the both benefits and drawbacks of highly innovative companies, but also venture capital investment that got very frothy and excited where there wasn't necessarily a business model. And so that was always sort of a piece of intrigue that sat in the back of my head uh, as I went through my career. I ultimately ended up in large media companies and had sort of a career reckoning, realizing I wanted to do something with more impact. At the time, CSR was sort of the most natural transition for me. And so I started to look for jobs that were in the CSR space, didn't know anything about impact investing, which is really just getting its start and happened to be lucky enough to be introduced to the person who was at the time the chief operating officer at the Case Foundation working for Gene Case, who was an early executive at AOL and Steve Case, who was a co-founder of AOL and got very, very excited uh, and realized that this was really where I wanted to spend my life's work. And you have some personal insight into entrepreneurship because your dad founded a business that subsequently failed. But what did you learn from that and especially about what it takes to be an entrepreneur? 
My dad was a mortgage banker and actually started a business uh, after working in the corporate world for many, many years, kind of burning out. And he actually was laid off uh, and got together with some friends, started a company. They had a lot of success and ultimately ran into some business challenges um, and they failed. So it was quite frankly, very hard on our family. Um, and naturally, one would think that I would shift away from entrepreneurship or think, gosh, I, I don't want to be in a world where that type of failure could be part of, of my life. But I also recognized the freedom that it gave him to be able to build the life that he wanted to build for himself and his family. And also that taking a risk and failing is part of the journey. And there's plenty of opportunities to pick back up uh, and start over again, do something else innovative. We look at this with entrepreneurs all the time. It's it's more a matter of how do we create systems where it is comfortable and okay for people to fail and pick back up. That's very natural in entrepreneurship. I'm also very excited about ways to think about that in the broader world uh, as well. And how can we fix the lack of equitable opportunity in the investment ecosystem? Ooh, I wish there was a magic wand we, <laughs> we could wave. Um, it is a systematic issue. So there's certainly multiple layers to solving this big problem. A lot of people talk about where is capital going? Who is it going to? But there's also the issue of who's making decisions about who gets venture capital. And so the reality is most venture capitalists are funded by limited partners and institutions who are making decisions that that venture capitalist should be the steward of their capital. And then that results in the inequality that we're seeing. And I think that if we saw limited partners and institutions take a more dramatic stance towards equality in where capital was going, we would see a lot of change very quickly. So if limited partners set minimums in terms of the amount of money that needed to go into diverse-led companies, that would be a pretty rapid transformation, in my opinion. And so we need to start with what bias is happening in the manager selection process as well. So if we have more diverse distributors of capital, that's going to be a huge opportunity to solve this problem as well. What's it going to take to move that needle? In other words, what would it take to encourage more diversity among the investor community? And what gets in the way? So I, I think a couple of things. And, and I do think the, the racial reckoning that we saw in the summer of 2020 and the subsequent series of commitments that were made, while I would like to see those commitments acted on more quickly, are starting to move the needle if we look at racial equity, for example. So some of it will require just a continuation of repetitiveness on the data that we do already have that demonstrates that whether we're looking at gender, race, or geography, that better businesses come out of diverse-led firms. Now, this doesn't mean only founders of color, but thinking about like what leadership teams are being built at the founder level. So continuing to share that data, share qualitative and quantitative data around the success of businesses who represent more diversity than the typical early stage investment in particular. And as well as as those companies go on to be successful, we've seen a number of women-led companies IPO in the last year, for example. So that's an exciting thing to continue to talk about and demonstrate. And as we start to see those validations of what we've been saying and what we have the data for all along, I do think we'll slowly start to see change. I also think we're going to need to see validation of 
new and innovative ways of investment decision making. So plug for Village Capital here. One of the unique parts of our work is that we rely on a different type of methodology for making investment decisions, peer-selected investment, which has resulted in a far more diverse portfolio. So our portfolio looks a little bit different than the average seed stage portfolio. Within the U.S., our portfolio is 40% led by people of color compared to the average of 2%. Globally, our portfolio is nearly 50% women-founded companies compared to the average of 15% globally. Um, and 87% of our companies are actually outside of uh, New York, California, Massachusetts, when we know that about 50% of companies who are venture funded receive capital from these three regions. I'm, I'm very optimistic while also frustrated with the pace of change. Let's just take a breather here to reflect on what Ali has been discussing. Village Capital uses peer-selected investment as a way to open up access to funding for entrepreneurs of diverse backgrounds. That involves getting the entrepreneurs themselves together to make decisions on where venture capital should go next. It's not to be confused with peer-to-peer -peer investment. That's something different. Peer-selected investment is a concept that Village Capital has been testing to great success when it comes to challenging barriers and biases over where money should go. You'll hear Ali talk more about what that entails and how that improves equitable opportunity and investment very soon. For Ali, this is important because real business innovation comes from life experience. And as she says, if you increase diversity amongst the financial decision makers, then you're more likely to increase the diversity of those people who benefit. That means entrepreneurs who understand real world problems and have real world solutions. Ali's hugely motivated by increasing equitable opportunity in order to increase diverse innovation in business. And that conviction is borne out by another guest in the Health to Wealth series, Ali Parser. Ali Parser is the CEO of Babylon Health, an AI and digital company that brings easy access to a doctor to anyone with a mobile phone. Ali's own life experience has fed into his motivation as an entrepreneur. And like Ali Burns, he's hugely passionate about increasing opportunities for everyone. So I went from being a pretty middle-class kid in a comfortable surrounding to being super poor as a refugee, went from Think of a family to being alone, from being a native to being an immigrant. And today I went from being young to being older, and then I was rich enough, and then I became poor enough, and then now I'm rich enough. It really doesn't matter what I saw. It doesn't matter who you are. Young, rich, poor, old, immigrant, native, people everywhere have the same needs the same desires. They just have different opportunities. That's all it is. They just have different opportunities. And if they can fix those opportunities, equalize it on healthcare, if we can equalize it much more importantly on education, if we can equalize it on their ability to express themselves, then I think we will have a better world because we have made it more possible for more people to flourish. Making it more possible for more people to flourish. I'd say that's a key aim for pretty much every guest you'll hear from in this series of Health to Wealth. You've already heard about peer-selected investment just a moment ago, which is Village Capital's USP. That peer-to-peer -peer approach is the way Village Capital supports disadvantaged groups to be more attractive to investment. 
And as you'll hear for Ali, this approach takes great inspiration from the microfinancing world, which you typically associate with developing nations. So Village Capital, the name Village Capital actually comes from a combination of venture capital and village banking. And the concept of peer-selected investment is really borrowed from the microfinance world where the village makes the decision on who receives a loan. And typically the way this works is there are a group of women, and it is usually women. They know each other. They understand each other. They can predict more accurately than the person who's distributing capital, who is more likely to return the loan, who is more likely to have a successful business. So what was piloted by Village Capital starting in 2009 was what happens if you put a group of entrepreneurs together, have them assess the merits of each other's businesses, help give them tools, teach them how investors think, what are they evaluating when they're thinking about the investability of the business and ask them who they think is going to generate the highest return on investment is more likely to be a successful investment. Um, certainly, it's not about whether the company will survive or grow, but who is more likely to return a high level of capital to investors. So the process has been honed over the last decade plus. And so we have a process that we're really confident in and excited about. But really, the exciting thing about peer-selected investment is not just that it results in a more diverse portfolio or in a portfolio that has generated returns for investors. We're really excited about what we're seeing about the financial results of the portfolio but also the process of peer learning and the benefits of peer learning for the companies, as you noted, particularly for diverse founders who now have access to not only a network of peers, but through the programs that we run to a network of mentors, investors, advisors that they wouldn't necessarily have had without participating in the program and helping build up that social capital that is so important as well. Would you describe your peer-selected investment as a fast-track conduit to impact investing? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I think it absolutely can be. Uh, I, I would say peer-selected investment theoretically could be used in quote-unquote non-impact sectors as well. The peer selection process does the diligence for you. That's one of the really big value adds of peer selection. And we have a decade of experience at 110 plus company portfolio to demonstrate that as well. And how far has peer-selected investment got to go to be absorbed into a mainstream culture? The question that we ask ourselves all the time as well is what does success look like for us in terms of adoption of peer-selected investment? And I don't think in every case it's realistic to think oh, all investment firms will adopt a peer-selected investment model. There are two barriers. One is cost. It is an expensive process. You do need entrepreneurs to spend a decent amount of time together. And we wrap around other services and training that we think are incredibly valuable to the growth of the business. So we're looking at ways to run the peer selection process in a, on a digital platform, for example. The second is stage. So it works really well for early stage companies who are solving a specific problem. So we run programs for peer-selected investment on a regional and sector-specific level, for example, financial health in sub-Saharan Africa or future of work in Latin America. And that's successful because the entrepreneurs really understand the problem that each other is solving. I think it's a little bit harder when you get to a later stage or to a more diverse set of sectors or geographies. 
What I do think can be adopted very easily by any investor is more voices in the decision-making process. So one of the things that came out of research that we did a couple of years ago around peer-selected investment was a recommendation that uh, that investors put entrepreneurs on their investment committee. That's a very easy solve to say, you know, this is a different perspective that we can bring to making decisions to create investment committees that are also more diverse. So it doesn't necessarily even have to be building from entrepreneurs in a peer-selected way. But there are certainly lots of opportunities for the spirit of peer selection to live in the investment decision-making process. You've touched on this a little prior to this point, but what's happening outside the world of the stereotypical investor when it comes to businesses that have more benefit to society? Are they flourishing or the opposite? Really exciting things in terms of the challenges that people are looking to solve and the innovative mechanisms that are coming into place to help those companies grow in the way that makes the most sense to them. There's a glorification of venture capital as the way to grow if you want to attract outside investment. And the reality is that a very, very small percentage, I think it's 2% of companies take venture capital and are appropriate for venture capital, which really pushes for a uh, very rapid growth and uh, emphasizes a return on capital to investors. That model isn't necessarily appropriate for a lot of companies who are taking much bigger risks in terms of the problems they're trying to solve and operating in environments that don't move as quickly as the timeline that venture capital operates on. Because most funds in VC are 10-year funds. There's a lot of pressure on companies to perform within a very short time frame. If you receive investment later in the life cycle of the fund, there's this real expectation of like, you're going to grow really rapidly within five years. And that's just not the reality when you're trying to solve these big systemic issues, whether it's I'm introducing a product that is focused on transforming the way that people get access to education in emerging market where there isn't a lot of capital available to participate in follow-on rounds, et cetera, or I'm building out a solution that requires a heavy R&D investment. Um, we see this a lot, of course, in the health space, particularly if you're looking at hardware innovation, or I'm building a company that is addressing an issue in the food sustainability space, but the reality is the supply chains are so broken in the market that I'm operating in, I have to build a holistic company that is not only solving one problem, but solving multiple problems in the supply chain. And so I need a lot of debt capital to be able to do that. And so we're seeing a lot more innovative financing models come together, whether it's blended capital using grants and uh, traditional investments, whether it's things like redeemable equity that help with liquidity challenges or revenue-based financing that's getting a lot more attention. Those are the things that we're seeing that are really exciting in terms of helping entrepreneurs who are building solutions to big social, economic, and environmental challenges come together. So seeing some of this in the VC space, seeing some more energy and attention, again, as the world thinks about ESG on investing in solutions that are solving, as we, we often sort of cheekily say, solving real world problems instead of my world problems. But it's happening more in the alternative capital space, and we're seeing a lot of exciting things come together. The thing we do need is education because so much media and attention and excitement comes into venture capital models and unicorn valuations 
There's a lot of press around those companies. It's not as sexy when a company is growing at a steady clip and solving a real problem, but is it maybe necessarily valued at, you know, X billion dollars. And so those companies don't get a lot of attention, which means that entrepreneurs, when they're first starting out, sort of start with the bias of, oh, I need to raise a whole bunch of money from venture capital when really their business model is more suited to a different type of investment. So that's one of the things we're really excited about focusing on is how do we help expose entrepreneurs to different models and different perspectives on what growth means as well. How much has impact investment grown in the last few years, Ali? Let's say five, the last five years. The ultimate goal is that essentially all investing is impact investing, whether it's negative screening. So in some definitions, impact investing is screening out companies and investments that are extractive or damaging to the environment or society. So certainly that's the ultimate dream of folks who have been in the impact investing space for a long time is uh, a world in which we don't necessarily have to use the term impact investing. All investing is impact investing. When we look specifically at the pie chart of investing that's going into companies who are solving the big challenges of financial inclusion, access to healthcare, housing, climate. We did a study in 2018 of the caveat of the companies that are valued at a billion dollars or more, found that only 15% of those companies are actually solving those problems in those sectors that I just mentioned. So sort of those big problems that are related to helping people live healthier and more productive lives. So I'm going to say optimistically, if I use that as a marker, because I'm in the early stage investing space, so that's what I typically look at by 2025, I would hope to see that number ticking closer to 40%, which reflects the dramatic increase we've seen in the interest that people have in solving these big problems. And we're starting to see, and again, I, I mix feelings on using unicorns as a, as a marker of what's happening because venture capital is such a small slice of the pie, but that's the data that's readily available to us. And that 40%, Ali, are you seeing that by 2030 or a little before that, maybe? 2030 is probably a realistic goal at this point, uh, but possibly before. Ali's thoughts on the growth of impact investment are really encouraging and inspirational. And I want to take a second here to let you know that you can hear more about ESG and impact investment in another episode of Health to Wealth with Sasha Celestial Wan. Sasha is the co-founder of Olio, an app that helps you share your food waste with people who might want it or need it. Sasha with Olio have been incredibly successful raising five rounds of financing, total over $50 million. That success is backed up by the fact that Sasha worked in investment banking previously, and she and her co-founder Tessa are ex-consultants. Now you'd expect that they absolutely have the skills and experience to raise funds successfully. And yet, they still face barriers. Barriers which are reflected in a statistic that Ali has already mentioned, in that, in the US, just less than 2% of venture capital goes to all women founding teams. I want to say that again, only 2% go to all women founding teams, and it's 2022. One of the other barriers that Sasha faced was that of childcare. Let's hear Sasha's take on what she needed to do in order to make space in her life for innovation in business. It was with great relief when I was on maternity leave back in 2012 when I had the opportunity so that I could pursue 
starting my own business and solve a problem that I was personally experiencing, which was lack of childcare as an expat. And if it wasn't for the fact that I benefited from the free childcare from that business, I wouldn't have had the time and space to dream big with Olio and partner up with Tessa. In the beginning, we didn't get paid. For the first nine, 10 months, Tessa and I bootstrapped entirely. It was just the two of us eating up our savings. We have a motto at Olio, which is ABF, always be fundraising. It's like dating. You can't just date once or twice a year and then hope to be happily, however it is that you define happiness, settled down with 2.4 children and three dogs or something. Like, you have to really keep putting yourself out there. But it's a lot easier to do that when you can present a really compelling financial case. And then that sort of is the basic hygiene. And then the rest of it comes down to, to chemistry and timing. I think female-founded teams in the UK received less than 1% of venture capital financing last year. 9% went to mixed teams and the rest to male-only teams. So the st- cards in some ways are stacked against us. All of this goes to show just how much drive and support you need to get things off the ground, even when you do have the skills and experience to drum up investment. And it's important as an entrepreneur to also think about how you're going to sustain yourself in the long run, both from a financial and from a well-being perspective. Because as you'll hear for Ali, that's not something that's been thought about enough in the past. I'd start with the sort of Silicon Valley hustle culture and recognizing that that has not been a healthy way to encourage the development of entrepreneurship as a path to solving big problems. Certainly, we've seen the fallout of that as the great resignation is happening, as people have burned out and maybe quit before they could really get going on a really exciting innovation. And this sort of glorification of work all the time. In order to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to work all the time and you can't have a life. And it's only the, for the, again, going back to the world of the privileged, if you don't have access to childcare or money or, you know, all of the other resources that you need. If we're glorifying that the only way to to start and scale a business is to hustle 24-7, then we're not taking care of the people who could be bringing really exciting change to this world. I'm starting to see a change in not just talk, but action on that front and really encouraging people to seek out self-care Women, again, are, are kind of leading the way in that conversation, but you're seeing more and more founders from all sorts of backgrounds talk about the importance of self-care and well-being as a business strategy. Um, to take care of yourself and your employees means you have the health to become a better business. I'm wondering aloud, should we be thinking about the well-being of the investors or the entrepreneurs. And the reason I say that is in the same way as well-being uh, philosophy and strategy in business, it's really important that the CEO has the right perspective on well-being. Should we be thinking about the well-being of the investors? That's such a great question. And honestly, something that's not talked about enough, possibly because it seems like a privileged place to come from as an investor talking about well-being and I think it's a really important conversation to be had as a not only to say it's important for us as an investor to make sure you as an entrepreneur are prioritizing your own well-being, but also modeling that behavior as well. You know, there's so much research that demonstrates that it's not only about encouraging with your teams, for example, uh, to take time off, to engage in self-care. But if you're not modeling that behavior, that means you're sending Slack messages and emails at whatever crazy hour. So as an investor, to model that behavior, to showcase that 
you also don't have that implicit expectation, you know, sort of the, the mismatch of what you say versus what you do uh, is really important. So I'm really glad you raised that as I don't think it's a conversation that's happening uh, very often. Are well-being specific businesses a sector that excites you or is well-being impact something that should be woven and interlaced through every business now? Both. So we certainly are excited about well-being focused businesses. We have been in the health space more broadly. I mentioned the culturally competent care work that we are doing, and that very much includes well-being and mental health, as well as uh, a number of companies that we've worked with in the past. So we're really excited about the emergence and recognition of the importance of well-being as a social imperative, and particularly as it relates to making well-being accessible to populations who have historically been excluded because of cost or because of time and creating the opportunity for well-being businesses to emerge, grow, and thrive. And I think it's critically important to help startups and help entrepreneurs understand the importance of integrating well-being into their cultures from the beginning. What do you think the world would look like if it was easier for anyone to start a business? Uh, a couple of things. I think we would be a lot farther along in solving some of the big problems that we are facing for sure. I think you would actually see people have a better quality of life because they can build the businesses and culture that they want to build. And uh, certainly think we would see a fast tracking of innovation that we don't even know exists yet. If we were able to uncover the ideas that exist and support the growth of those ideas that exist where people are experiencing true pain points, I think we'd live in a world that's better for everyone. And I'm really excited because I think we really are on the precipice of a real disruption and shift to focusing on the problems that matter to all of us um, and not just a subset of the population. Ali, what would the future look like if investors were investing with equality at the top of their mind or indeed the top of their decision making? Well, a couple of things. I think we'd see the wealth expand. So I don't want to talk about wealth shifting, but wealth expanding to a much broader population of people. We would see role models for all sorts of communities for people who may not have ever seen themselves going on a path of becoming an investor or building a career in financial management. So that's a very specific thing. I think we'd see a lot more role models and excitement and enthusiasm about entering the space of investment, which means then we have more diverse people in positions of power and making decisions around who receives money. And we would see the solutions that actually receive capital change, going back to my previous comment about the types of problems that we're trying to solve. And I think we'd see more innovation around how financing happens and thinking more long-term, thinking more creatively about what financial return looks like. We're constantly trying to beat the market, beat the market, beat the market, um, and accumulate more wealth for a smaller number of people. I think that we would see a lot more creativity in how do you not shrink the pie for some and grow it for others, but expand the pie for everyone. Ali, your drive and motivation is so infectious. You're widening that investment gate for more pie to go around. Village Capital is a rousing call for others to follow. 
And if Ali's got you thinking about your own startup ideas, then let me tell you about the Viva Technology event in Paris on the 15th to the 18th of June. It's called Viva Tech for short. Viva Tech is the world's rendezvous for startups and leaders to celebrate innovation. Health to Wealth is a partner through Accor, and we have shortlisted a list of startups who will pitch to a jury on June 15th for a winner to be crowned. The Health to Wealth category is how to help people take action for their well-being. Have a look on the Health to Wealth website for more information. And if you're going to the event, do let me know because I'm also going to be there. There's a contact form on that website so you can get in touch very easily. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Health to Wealth, a series created by Accor. Next time, you'll hear from Ali Parser on how telemedicine could revolutionize your experience of accessing healthcare. Please rate, review and follow Health to Wealth. You can find out more at healthtowealthbyaccor.com.